Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. You've just rolled into the Ride in Style podcast, the ultimate pit stop for everything automotive, aftermarket accessories, and restyling. Strap in with Jesse Stoddard, the marketing virtuoso steering the wheel at Auto Style Marketing, and Josh Polson, SEMA's show-stopping person of the year. We've got an under-the-hood look at industry insights, turbocharged trends, and jaw-dropping interviews designed just for you, the ambitious restylers and the savvy installers. So if you're ready to supercharge your auto accessorizing skills and accelerate into the future of automotive restyling, you're in the right lane. Buckle up, because here we go. Josh, why don't we start with this? Let's just start with an introduction and background. So if you wouldn't mind, please introduce yourself. Tell us about your journey before and then into the auto restyling industry. Oh man, this is a funny story because I actually, I stumbled into the business. If we're going to start this thing off right, people need to know I am not a big car enthusiast. People joke about it. They think it's a stick. They think whatever. I really don't have a big love for cars or trucks or SUVs or drifting or racing or lifting or off-roading or overlanding. It's really not my thing, but I love this business. I love accessories. I love the aftermarket. I love the manufacturers. I love the people. I love the car dealers. I love how putting it all together, making people happy, getting what then what they like, letting people make money. I, I love all of that. So I love the business part more than the actual stuff. And I think that's helped me along because I tell people I do more thinking with my brain than my heart in business. That's usually better because if you do stuff because you like doing it, doesn't mean you always make money. What happened with me was I was 16 years old and the only other, I had a job at, I had a caddying job, which, but that was only during the summer and I loved doing that. But also then I had to get a job. I started working at Kroger. It's a national retailer, grocery retailer, and I was a bagger. So I, that's what I did. I bagged groceries. 16 years old. And the reason I needed the job is because I was, I stopped going to high school and I was just going to college only and taking some high school classes down there. So I actually am a paralegal, but I needed a job. So I was bagging groceries. And, um, but one day a friend of mine or uh, who was older than me and my parents age, he saw me in the grocery store parking lot and he goes, Hey, I didn't know you worked here at Kroger. I said, yeah, I'm going to school and working here part-time. He goes, Oh, if you ever need a job, let me know because I could use you. And I was like, I didn't even know what he did. I said, oh, thanks, Mike. Um, but I, I'm actually about to get a raise. And he goes, all right, no problem. Just if you ever need anything, give me a call. Didn't even think twice about it. But I was so excited to get my raise. I was six months in and I was, I had a couple ribbons, a couple stars on my badge. I thought, man, I'm, but I didn't know under, I didn't understand how unions work or anything like that. So anyway, anyway, I get, I'm waiting for my check. I'm waiting to have this meeting, this big promotion, something and nothing. Nobody ever says anything. And so I asked one of the managers, I said, Hey, I think I was supposed to get a raise. Do I, do they meet with me? Do they talk about it? Do I get a review? And they're like, no, it just shows up on your check. I was like, oh, okay. So anyway, Friday payday comes, there's my check. So I opened it up and I'm like, okay, finally, I'm finally going to start making some money. I open it up and I had been making $4 and 20 cents an hour. I was killing it, Jesse, right? $4.20 an hour. I opened it up and now my new pay raise was $4.25 an hour. 
And I was just so deflated because I hit, I, not that I felt I was the amazing bag or anything. I just, but I was really busting my butt. I never took tips. I did anything they asked. I cleaned bathrooms. I did whatever. And I was go-getter. They didn't have to ask me to stay busy. I wasn't hiding behind like all my other fellow employees. I was just so deflated because I just felt like I was underappreciated. That's when I realized I was a number and not a real employee. So I call, I actually saw my buddy, Mike, who saw me in the, like a, a week later. And I said, Hey, Mike, you mentioned that you might need some help. I said, what do you, what are you paying these days? And he's, oh, I would start you out at $5 and 50 cents. I said, when do I start? I had just hit the jackpot. Easy sale. I was an easy sale. I said, all right, when do I start? Because I'm ready to go. He goes, all right, we'll come in Monday. So it was like three or four days later. I showed up Monday morning. He gave me the address. I showed up. I had no idea what I was doing. He told me we were, he told me something about auto edition. He said something about sunroofs. I said, all right, that's way cooler when you're talking to girls than I, I'm a bagger at the grocery store. So. <laughs> It's not really my thing, but I was like, all right, that's, so that's what's going on through my mind. So I show up that Monday morning and I was like, all right, what do we do? He goes, we put on running boards, we stripe cars, we do bumpers, we just do sun, pop up sunroofs and striping. I was like, okay, all right, cool. I'm in, let's do it. So that was, so I was 16. So that was, man, I'm 47 now. So that was 31 years ago. And so I worked there part-time for probably, I think a year and a half until I graduated. And when I graduated, it was either law school, get a job as a paralegal, or do this. The problem in Columbus, Ohio was there's so many lawyers per capita. It's like one of the biggest lawyers per capita in the country. So lawyers coming out of law school were taking paralegal jobs and taking, and if you're a law firm, you're going to hire a full, someone who's been through law school versus just somebody who's a paralegal. So there really, and there really wasn't a lot part-time uh, or even full-time available. So I just stayed with auto additions and the rest is history. You know, that's what ha- that's, I was a horrible installer. I started off as an installation. So I did pop-up centers. I did graphics. I did striping. I did running boards. I was a great running board installer. Uh, my guys make fun of me because they, they think I, they call me the running board king, even though I really wasn't that good, but they, none of them were around. I just tell them I was good, but I really wasn't that good of an installer. So. Over time, eventually, I think all the managers left and went to SEMA, including the owner. And when they came back, I had everything cleaned up. Everything was more organized. Everything was, the customers were happy. We got more work done. And they're like, he needs to be doing more like management, working with customers. And let's get him away from tools. (laughs) So So did they, they transition you into sales or uh, how did, no, I ran. So at that time, our company was divided. We had into two, we had the harder stuff like power centers, leather interiors, the stuff that took a while. And then we had my side, which was all the easy stuff, spoilers, pop-up centers, graphic striping, running boards. So I ran that whole side for a while. And then I also worked with retail customers and that's where I learned how to sell. And then eventually we merged the whole company together. And then when we did that, I actually, I didn't want to be in the office as much. So they put me on the road. And I actually had my own route for a while where I just worked yeah. out of my truck. Uh, Mobile. Was it? Yeah. Doing my kind of stuff. And, and I enjoyed that. But then eventually I did sales, just sales. I didn't do any installation and fed the uh, shop. And then eventually back in 2000, the owner came to me and goes, Hey, I'm, 
I'm moving to Tennessee. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean you're moving to Tennessee? I'm about a month from getting married. I'm 25 years old. And he's now you're going to run the whole company. I'm just, I'm moving to Tennessee. I'm like, how is that going to work? And I just remember him going, listen, it's fine. You're already doing, you're doing it. You're just going to. You're going to do more things. And by the way, you're going to make mistakes, but that's okay. And if it's really important, just call me. Okay. You know I mean? It's not like I even had a choice. I needed a job. I'm about to get married. And so that's how I started. And then, yeah, in 2000, and then I just started learning from things. And yeah, looking back, it's, time's flown by the last uh, 22 years. So did you transition into being an owner at some point in there and, or like, how did all that work? What does that look like from, from being thrown into the management position of running it? You know, how did that progress in the next 20 years or so? It's hard when your peers, all of a sudden you're like, even though if you're a manager, but then when the owner's gone, it's hard when you just are taking over and I'm the guy. Yeah. Even though the owner did a good job when he left, he said, okay, he's the guy. Don't call me. <laughs> But yeah, it's been a, it's been a little bit of a transition over the years. However, I will say that, and he, in fact, he's still involved today, taught me some life lessons and still bounce things. It's one of those things where as people, as you, as people leave the company and new people come on and everything like that, it just, it's automatically expected and the roles and everything like that. So it's, a, it was harder in the beginning because everybody was like, oh, you're the guy that was doing running boards next to me. Now all of a sudden you're in charge of my pay and you're signing my paycheck and you're making decisions for all of us. I think the trust factor was there, but the respect factor wasn't. I remember somebody telling me some training I went to where it's either you have trust or respect. It's very hard to have both. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's, so yeah, I think it probably took four or five years for it really to turn around to the point where people just respected me as the, okay, he's the guy, he signed everything, it's his baby, don't mess with it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a great background, great history. The next kind of series of things I want to look at is like challenges and triumphs is, is what I call this. So maybe you could share some of your biggest challenges that you faced in the industry sure. and, and then how you overcome them. A couple other ideas or any, any significant failure in hindsight that led to like incredible learning and growth or how have you navigated the challenges of maybe of this, like nowadays we've got the supply chain issues and low dealership in inventory, the economy, its impacts, all that kind of stuff. But basically biggest challenges you've faced in the industry yeah. or from the beginning all the way until now, if you cover any of those, it'd be great. I think, hey, listen, I, I didn't have a business background and I'd never owned a business. I'd never gone to school for business. So learning the whole P&L, general ledger, how to read reports, financials, balance sheets, that was a lot of online learning, self-taught, self working with my accountant and him explaining things. And just, you really have to, you, know, you can't have an ego. You have to be humble and just say, listen, I don't understand this. Can you, do you mind explaining this to me? I don't know what any of this means. I know how to go out sell something, get it installed. And hopefully there's more money in the bank than when we started that whole process. <laughs> but then you get all these extra pieces in there and you get assets and you get fixed expenses, variable expenses, taxes, and you get all these things and employees and you get more and then you get FICA and social security, you get all these extra things in there. Um, I think it's viable or very, uh, very important to reach out to other people and ask them. 
don't act like a know-it-all just because you're a business owner or whatever. That that usually is going to mean a fail. Now you're a failed business owner. <laughs> so ask other, ask your friends who own businesses, ask accountants, ask anybody you con come in contact with. Do research, YouTube it, Google it. <laughs> so that was a challenge in the beginning. My management style has had to change over the years. Um, in the beginning, it was like, no, it needs to be done this way because this is the absolute best way. But I, I view that kind of like, I called it the funnel effect. And one, I had a manager before that drove me nuts because everything he felt needed to flow through him. And he, it just, you put so much in, but it, not as much is coming out. So how do we take away the funnel effect so that, and you, and that's where it comes into, you just have to enable people, trust people, give them the job, enable them to get everything they do, and then work with them on any mistakes they make. That's awesome advice for everybody anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a reminder to me too. Yeah. It's like we all need to hear that. You can't be a micromanager. If, yeah. you, if you're going to be a micromanager, then you're basically saying, you can't do this job. I have to do it for you. That's never going to allow them to grow. Maybe they have a better way of doing things. So even though there are, there's, you might have some pillars of how you want things done, let people do it their own way. And you know what? They may not do it as fast. They may not do it as efficient. But at the end of the day, did you have to be involved with all of it? No. So what happens is that funnel just at the bottom grows wider and wider. So then more work gets through. And actually, you make end up making more money for the business and for people just because you're, you take a step back and get out of the way. Yeah, that's awesome. Really good stuff. Any other, do you ever feel like there was any, at any point that you had any temporary failures? Uh, yeah, or, two things that know. stand out when you ask that. First of all, 0809 was a rough, we remember the Great Recession. The automotive industry was probably one of the hardest hit. I just remember, I remember we, we hired a guy and he had been there for two weeks and we were a little overstaffed, but we were like building for the future, get a guy trained. And when that hit, I remember being like September of 08, I think, September of 08. Yeah. And it hit hard and automotive and it was just like it almost it was like the faucet just dried up for car because we were very heavily car dealer probably 95 percent car dealer at the time and one week we were busy the next week we were semi-busy the next week we were half busy and then all of a sudden it was like quarter busy it was like what in the world we had to get rid of some guys and i remember at that point i had a uh, a shop manager that i worked very closely with and he was good about making sure that we were doing that. And I remember one thing we did for a while is we went to a four-day work week. Hmm. And what we did was because Mondays in, in the restyling business, at least in our business, and I think a lot of guys are saying Monday, it seems you get a lot of calls from the weekend from the dealers Monday morning. Hey, come get this carpet center. Hey, do this leather. Hey, do this heated seat. Hey, do this. So Monday, it seems like the whole morning you're just getting all these calls and you're trying to get some cars in. And if you schedule a car for Monday, you may have to wait till nine o'clock, call the dealership, calls you back at nine. This is back in those days, back nine thirty, ten 10 o'clock, you go pick up the car. You may not even get it to your shop by noon for your tech to even start on it. Mm -hmm. So we looked at that as lost time in the morning on Mondays. So what we did was we built Mondays up to get all as much work coming in so that Tuesday, Thursday, or Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we had full work days and we would try to get them for 10 hour days, but we'd at least get them eight hour days. 
So like Monday was like the scheduling and sales day or follow-up day and yeah. customer service day. And okay. trying to get all the cars picked up so that right. we would come in at sometimes at five or six o'clock in the morning because we had cars sitting there and we would just work longer and get those cars in and out instead of just the all the dead time that we had Mondays. And then by the end of the week, we're like watching guys' hours. We can't pay overtime. So it made sure we never paid overtime because a lot of our guys, most of our guys were on hourly at that time. So we never paid overtime and it really just allowed, and, and they liked it because they were still getting some hours and they had an extra day off during the week. Yeah. Or they had a three day weekend. Yeah. Three day weekend's pretty nice. So Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Yeah. So I think the UAW heard about that and now they're fighting Kevin Ford. They're like auto edition back in the 09 did the four day a work week. We <laughs> you guys led for all of our unions. I, I can't say that for sure. You guys let the strike. They're going to hear this podcast. And they're be like, dang it. Everybody found out about it. But yeah, I do remember we did that. Another one big failure I did. This is funny. And this is back when he goes, here's the keys to the kingdom. Just go ahead and do whatever you want. And I thought, man, we need to do advertising. We do no advertising. I was always mad. We never did advertising. Word of mouth, word of mouth. And then I hear our competitors. They're on the radio. They're on the TV. I'm like, we're losing. So I remember I went to, I got invited to go to something and they, gave you breakfast and here was like a local radio thing. And they're like, okay, we own these three channels and we're how they do it. They, uh, we reach millions of people and you don't understand the, uh, how powerful advertising is here. Listen to three or four people and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I've heard them on the radio before and they're multi-million dollar companies, blah, blah, blah. And I remember one, the one dude from Motel 6, he never does any TV, but he does radio. And I always remember that every time I hear one of his advertisers, like, yeah, he fooled me anyway. So they had this thing and it was worth like, I don't know, $60,000 worth of advertising. But if you do it for the next six months, we're only, we'll only charge you 10,000. And I'm thinking, man, now that's a lot of money, especially back in those days. I was like running a lean shit. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. We did it $10,000 and we, and I did, I put my heart and soul into that, our advertising. And we did all these fun things. Hey, the sun's out. Can you see it? Come to auto editions. And I, and we came up to say rule number 32, why you should accessorize your vehicle. Is your car cold or in winter? Then get a remote start. We're trying to just think we have all this candy store. And I I was so excited when I heard it on the radio. In fact, they would tell me, okay, your ads are happening this time and this time tomorrow. And I would go out in the shop. I'd turn it way up. I go, all right, everybody stop working. Everybody start working. <laughs> and then it'd be like 30 seconds and it's over. And everybody's just looking at me. I'm like. No, that's going to make us millions. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> I am, when I get to interview you, we'll talk about how just fake marketing or what'd you call it? What kind of marketing? Like it's the newest, greatest thing that you just run into and you think that's the fake trick. Yeah. The yeah. shiny objects and shiny object marketing. Yeah. And the big dumb company marketing, the kind that's just branding and ego and yeah. <laughs> or to, or to so, please their shareholders, you know? Yeah. So I'm just, I just thought as soon as that radio hit, I said, Eric, you need to run to the front door because there's going to be a line of people <laughs> wanting to get pop-up sunroofs because they just, or power sunroofs because they heard this radio. <laughs> didn't exactly didn't quite recognize. So I think, and I had, and that's the other thing. I had no way to tell what the ROI was either. Yeah. I just basically looked back and said, all right, yeah, we did an extra $3,000 in sales over the last six months, but I spent 10,000. Yeah. You hope it pays off someday. But I realized pretty quick that the stuff that helps your ego and makes you feel really good doesn't always pay the bills. Yeah, I had a sweet advertisement and they, 
threw our name out there all over Columbus, Ohio, but yeah, it didn't pay the bills. How about, yeah. <laughs> How about recently over the since 2020 and all of the lockdown stuff and the supply chain issues and the low dealership inventory and the economy and how has that impacted you? And like, how are you dealing with that and navigating through all that junk? Like, and how do you just mentally deal with it too? Yeah, I think those roller coasters you go through when you have a business and you're just like, all of a sudden government shut down. I remember March, 2020 and it's, and I, we were preparing for an auto show. We had all these cars we were building, we were going everything. And then I remember my sales rep came in and goes, I talked to somebody that said, they're going to shut this whole state down. I'm like, what? No way. No way. That's impossible. You know, <laughs> yeah. that disease is over in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. But anyway, so I remember yeah, when they shut that down and then they said, okay, listen, you're non-essential. And I looked at it as, okay, if I don't put everybody on unemployment right now and shut the doors, we may not even have a business. Cause I thought for sure it was 0809 times three. And because going through 0809, it really made me learn how to, okay, just find out we need to cancel everything except for the bare minimums, everything run on backup power and just stay alive and try to weather the storm. That's what I was expecting. I think a lot of people are expecting it. Oh, yeah. So at least with this, the government was like, okay, go on unemployment and you still have a paycheck. And because I, I really didn't think we'd have any sales coming in. So I remember we shut down, I decided to shut down around April 1st, because I didn't really feel we were essential. We probably could have tried, but I didn't feel my conscience would not allow us to, to get anybody sick or kill anybody because of whatever, even though my, some of my texts didn't agree with me. <laughs> so we did that. We put everybody on unemployment and I liked, it. I was like, man, it's nice sleeping in and not having to go into the office. And, but you're worried you're like, this is crazy. What's going to happen? But I was still getting a few calls. So then the. I still would, I would still come in and do some work. And I had a couple guys that they could still make a little bit of money on unemployment. So I'd pay them. And I think in April we did, I don't know, like I still had, I think we still did 30 grand worth of business, <laughs> on, which is, it was just some packages and this or that, or some fleet work. It was crazy. I was like, man, we were shut down. We still did 30 or 40 grand. I can't remember. Pretty good. But, but then I, after about a month, I'm like, okay. There's now they're starting to work triple in. And I also didn't want to lose anybody. I didn't want them to go to a competitor or another job because they wanted to get back to work and not just yeah. be stuck on unemployment because you're only getting paid so much. So I said, okay, I think we need to come back to work, but we may not be super busy. So I, here was my genius idea, Jesse. <laughs> I am going to build these awesome fire pits and give them away to our customers. So we had these huge barrels that we do spray and bed liners in that we can't do anything with. Oh, okay. And, I, and a buddy of mine, Joey Johnson down North Carolina, I think it was him that gave me the idea. I can't remember. But anyway, he shed me this website and I was like, man, we could clean these things out, break them down, cut them, put on these awesome, and they look awesome in your backyard. <laughs> and I mean, if you were to buy these things retail, they'd be like $2,000. I said, we're going to build them. I'm going to keep everybody busy and then we're either going to sell them or we're going to give them away to our car dealers and trade for like work. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'm like, and then I had some other ideas we're going to do. I, it was, I can't remember. Oh, I know what we were going to do. We were also going to build some cornhole things. <laughs> we were just going to build stuff. 
we got talented guys here. We're going to build stuff and we're going to, and I'll get rid of it. I'll make deals and I'll do whatever I got to do. But I, I wanted to get these guys back to work. And then I also had them there so that if we did have work come in, they could get that done. We brought everybody back after a month, oh, and, wow. which was cool. great. And everybody came back. Only oh, one, I think one guy was like a little hesitant on coming back. And I said, all right, you got till Friday to decide. If you don't come back, then you're not staying on unemployment. You're not coming back to work. For me, you either come back or don't. And he ended up coming back. And if people didn't want to come back, that's not the kind of person you want anyway. They yeah. just wanted to snooze away. So anyway, they, everybody came back. And you know, this day, we never built one barrel. And we never did one cornhole because we just got busy. Oh, and we had enough work to keep everybody busy. And then we got busier and busier to the point where we, I was so disappointed. I look back a couple of times, we never built one of those things. <laughs> so, and that's then, funny. So then we ended up having a really good end of the year. And then 2021 was phenomenal. We had a bigger year because, and we had some competitors actually, not large ones, but some guys that went out of it, it's went out of business or never just what came back to work or found other jobs or whatever. It was a little tough at times getting parts, but what happened is it gave us an excuse. We used to be very much, if you called us today, we did everything jumping through hoops to have it done by tomorrow, mm. which is really not a good model because sometimes we pressure too much yeah. pressure. And so one thing that the, one thing that COVID has done for everybody, especially us in our business is, Hey, we'll order the parts. When we get the parts, we'll schedule you. When we get it done, we'll get it done. You can't rush. Look how long people are waiting for furniture and stuff to come in and across the board. So COVID made everybody, it gave an excuse for a long time that people are like, I'm sorry. It just, it is what it is. I can't help right. it. People will learn how to be a little bit more patient. Which is a good thing in some ways for quality assurance too, especially, right? Yeah. Checking on making sure the job's done right. And we've implemented some of that. We've said, listen, you can't rush this stuff. Do you want it done right? Or do you want it done fast? Yeah. And when it comes to their people's cars, since they love them, they want it done fast. Uh, but dealers want it done fast. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cool. That's awesome. So let's move on to the evolution of what's going on in the industry from your point of view, your opinion and like trends and stuff. So I guess what, the first question is, how has the industry changed? since you got involved and where do you see it heading in the future? Let's change a lot in products. I think you have two parts to that question. You have, okay, what are the, what are you putting on vehicles? What are you yeah. doing to vehicles? How has that changed? But then how's the overall business changed? So which one do you want to hear first? Both, either one, <laughs> you pick. How about the industry overall? And then specifically what you're seeing on the, on your restyling on the retail level and dealership level business and overall has changed because it's not years ago. I remember walking to one of my car dealers and they just had, it seemed like hundreds and hundreds of the same trucks and cars. The only difference was color. They had red, blue, white, gray, black. That's it. And then in the next row over, it was black, yellow, or black, gray, red, whatever. It was just the same thing. And so it was so easy back then to say, hey, let's dress a couple of these up because they all look so bland. And then they would sell them as, hey, this one's what you want, but it's not bland. <laughs> 
And so that was probably like the 80s and 90s, and early 2000s. Manufacturers, vehicle manufacturers, OEs, did a really, have done a really good job of getting into all these trim levels and all these packages. You take, for instance, the Ford F-150, I think I would have to talk to my buddy Steve that works for it, but he, I think there's 15 different types of F-150s you can buy. So now the problem is you walk onto a lot or it has been, you walk on a lot and they have what you want. So that took a little bit of adjusting for restylers. Mm. So then we had to sell the value is you can save money by going with our route and you may not have to jump those full trim level packages. So that's changed. And now it's coming back though. Mm. What's interesting, and it's going to probably take a 20, 30 year journey if we see this whole thing. But now from everybody I talked to, it's coming back because those, those 15 Ford F-150 models are probably going to jump down to four or five. And the reason is because it doesn't make money for Ford. Same thing with obviously GM and Toyota and everybody. They can't afford to have that many different types of packages. It just doesn't make sense for them. So it's easier for them just to scale back and hope that the public accepts it. And I think that's where you're going to see a lot of transition with the electric. Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, here, look at our new fancy object. It's electric. Yeah, and it only comes in these two packages. <laughs> yeah. So they're using the electric to veil over the fact that it's two trim levels <laughs> or three trim levels. That's the fancy new object. So don't look at the man behind the curtain type thing. But I think there will be a great opportunity for restylers moving forward for all of our products. The other things as far as, and then the way people are selling cars, so much more is being done online, right? I think the big fear in COVID for a lot of us in the restyling business is what if no one ever comes into a dealership again? Crazy thought could happen. Because a lot of our stuff is <laughs> sold through the local dealer channel. You can right now, right? You can go on, buy an F-150. Most dealers have some kind of express checkout. They'll send you all the email, email you all the F&I paperwork. You do it all, send it back, and you literally just go pick it up or they'll deliver it. So you never went in to test drive it or pick it out. I think that's going to be a hard transition for people because we used to work. We want to touch and smell it and feel it. It's still an emotional buying decision. Yeah. Not like just buying glasses on, sunglasses on Amazon. Some right. people are okay, but some people still want to try them on. So I think that's in our favor. But I think we also, as restylers, have to come up for, with ways to counterbalance as that slowly becomes. Because, yeah, this generation and the next generation may not own but. We go three or four generations deep. Now you got kids who the only way they order Starbucks is on their app. They were like, why would I go in and talk to a human and, and ask for a call chai latte? I can just do this on my phone and go pick it up and not have to talk to anyone. That's the generation that I'm worried is not going to want to go into a dealership and buy a car. And that's where we're heading in the future. Yeah. So I, I, I explained this to SEMA the other, to a big group of people at SEMA. They're like, because they don't really quite understand all the restyling. I said, we are like the Girl Scout cookie table outside of the subway. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And here's, right. here's the, how the analogy, I know you're a big analogy guy. So here's how the analogy works. When you go get lunch at Subway, you walk in, you order your sandwich, they make it, it's fresh, you pay for it. And on your way out, you're like, heck yeah, I want some Girl Scout cookies. And you pay for them. But. If you DoorDash Subway, the Girl Scout cookie never comes up in the process. So right. she's not now selling anything because you never even got the option to buy it. So I feel like that's where we are as restylers. 
as stuff changes over time, we could find ourselves not even be part of the mix where that's why we have to be somehow, some way, and that analogy, wouldn't it be awesome if the, hey, while you're picking it up at this local subway, would you like any of these Girl Scout cookies? Just say, yes, then people will do it. So as business changes, we just have to stay relevant and not to say it's 100% going to go away, but it's tough being a Girl Scout these days. Yes. I love it. That's going to be your nickname now. You're going to have to get you a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> how do you stay up to date? I know you're involved in so much stuff and, and uh, SEMA Pro and everything, but how do you feel what's important for you or other restylers to stay up to date with all the latest trends and the technologies and auto restyling and specific resources or publications or events that you rely on? Anything you want to mention about all that? I I think in our industry, so at our company, we probably have, I don't know, couple hundred different products that we offer. So it's almost impossible for me to proactively go out and keep up to date and, or more importantly, my people keep up to date. We, I think it, the more of that Ionis actually belongs to the manufacturers. And so if I were to say anything to the manufacturers and I do tell them this, my sales reps, and when I talk to Micah, you guys need to do a good job of getting the message out on why, what the updates to your products are. It's, it shouldn't be up to me to go out there and find, to see what works. You guys should be feeding us that information, whether it be through email, whether it be through social, whether it be through packets, whether it be visits, whether it be whatever, sales trainings, webinars, whatever it is, your technology, your up-to-date products, fitments, everything like that, you need to be feeding me constantly to stay relevant. Because if I'm getting fed from 200 people, or let's say I'm just getting fed from 100 people, that's enough where to keep me busy that I'm not even looking at the other 100. I'm just now expecting it. So the good manufacturers will keep everybody up to date. So whether it's 12-volt electronics, whether it's window film, truck accessories, whatever it is, a good manufacturer needs to do multiple ways of keeping the, the restylers and the shops up to date more and that could be through like some magazines that could be through other things but they need to take the bull by the horn and keep it up to date that's the only way i can take the time to learn it and grow it and find out what's new it's interesting you're saying that because i i think the dealerships probably feel the same way about us and the restyle they we they we can't expect them to read our minds and to know how to do all this and we got to provide that education for them so yeah. it's a two-way street both on both sides there. And I think what happens too is resellers get into a rut because, you know, if you, it would be interesting to, for a shop to go, okay, go interview your top five customers and ask them, what is it that this restyler does? What do they do? And for years, we were known as the Sunroof Company. And I, it, it hit me one day. One of my very best, one of my very best customers back in the late nineties, uh, early two thousands. And I remember him calling me the print dealer principal going, Hey, by the way, do you guys, do you guys do heated seats? And I'm sitting there, I'm like, my jaw just dropped. Like, how do you not know we, it had been one, it had been a growing product for us. And here I had never taken the time to go in there and say, Hey guys, we do. We were just so busy doing all the other stuff for them that they were used to that I didn't introduce the new thing, the latest thing. I still remember one of my good customers called me, goes, hey, 
talk to me about what this new thing is, this new technology called Bluetooth. And I'm yeah. like, Bluetooth? What, I, is this a joke? <laughs> what kind of dental thing are you talking about here? So then I did a, a quick search for it on Bluetooth. Oh, it's wireless technology for phone calls. I was like, right. so then I started doing research and come to find out, come to find out. Oh yeah, there's Bluetooth. And that's when, that was before, of course, the world got inundated with Bluetooth, but we can do these kits in cars and everything because some customer had asked him and he, instead of going to Ford reps or anybody else, he called me first because he thought I would be on the, if anybody knew, he thought I would be on the cusp of knowing it. So I had to learn real quick, hey, I need to be the guy. I want to be the guy. I want to keep maintaining that reputation so that if they go, hey, I need help. You're the only guy that I can think of that can help me with this. That is awesome. Yeah. Great positioning too. That's a good segue into the next segment here. I want to talk about a unique selling proposition and memorable moments, more like things about your specific company. And so like, how would you define it about your own business? What makes your business unique in, in the, even just within and within auto restyling? So what, how do you differentiate yourself? What sets you apart from other companies in the field? Uh, how do you describe that? I think we've done a good job in our local market. I think we've done a good job over the years of being very customer friendly. At the end of the day, we all have the same products. The price is all the same. Only thing that's going to differentiate you is how you take care of the situations. There's going to be problems, but it's how you, how do you take care of I used to have a competitor till we bought him back in 2017, but man, if they, if a trim piece got broken in a car, you're think about this, you're taking apart a whole car to put a sunroof in, you're putting it all back together. Plastic trim pieces are cheap. Sometimes they break, they think that there's a crack in one, you send it back to the dealership and the customer goes, Hey, my, this trim piece in my car is broken. And the dealer would be like, oh, we sent it out for a sunroof. Let me check. And they would call my competitor. My competitor goes, how do you know it wasn't broken before? Send me a picture of it. Because blah, blah, blah. He, just, he was so hard to deal with. And then it would be like a $30 piece. And he'd go, I'll pay for half of it. But you guys have to install it and not charge me. It was, and my mentors just said, hey, no. Yes, I'm so sorry, sir. We will get that bot and we will take care of it. Because it's, you're going to end up ruining a relationship over 15 bucks, 30 bucks, just take care of it for the customer. And hopefully you win more in the long run and you learn from it, whether you did it or not, there's definitely stuff we got blamed for that we didn't do. But I said, well, how do I prove we don't do it? How about, how do I prove we didn't do it? How do I prove that it wasn't us? So unless there's hard, 100% undeniable under review, red flag that yes, this is, did not happen then I just usually take care of it for the customer because, and I think that has endeared me to some of my larger customers so that of course there's retail people trying to take advantage of you and you have to negotiate or this or that. But for my larger dealers, listen, I just take care of it and make it up in volume. And it's just good customer service and relationship building it, it is totally key. Yeah. I think another one is we have become known as um, the guys to ask. So I, I love it. And I, I actually, I wrote an article on this one time for shop magazine, because I said, just be that guy. That guy is the guy who says, Hey, Jesse, what do you need? Oh, I knew that. Oh, you know what? I got a guy. 
You want to yeah. be that guy because even if it's, even if it's, a, I will get calls that says, Hey, um, I need a seatbelt for the third row of this expedition. We bought a police car. It doesn't have a third row. Where can I buy a seat, a seatbelt? And I'll say, I could be, I could easily say, you know what? I don't deal with that. I have no idea. Sorry. Instead, what I will do is I'll go, you know what? I don't have that, but here's a link where you can buy it. Or here's a company you can call. Here's their phone number. Ask for this guy. I want to be the yellow pages. I want to be the, the place they turn to. Yellow pages is probably too irrelevant now, but I want to <laughs> yeah. be the Google, right? The I go to, be, you want to be the go-to guy I with, the, be, with yeah. the network. I want to be that guy. So like that the way they Black call Lux, me. Right. Yeah. That way they call me about anything and I pick and choose what I want to do and what I don't want to do. So if it's something that's way out of my league or whatever, off our radar, I'll refer them to somebody, but I know next time they'll call me instead of calling my competitor for him picking and choosing or her picking and choosing. So I want to be that guy that solves problems for people because then when I come in and I have an issue, man, they're all over it. Hey, I'm, I'm a little low on work. Can you help me out? Oh yeah, sure. Take care of my guy. You're my guy. <laughs> Not Love it. Love it. Take a trip down memory lane here for a minute. See if yeah. is, is there a particular memory, a memorable project you've worked on and what made it special or funniest, most bizarre or strangest thing that happened to you in your business. So any of that, anything that comes out that stands oh. in your mind that you could share, maybe one or two of those, any memorable project. A bad one, bizarre. a real bad one one time was we had, okay, it was a retail job. It was like a 99 Mustang and this was in the early 2000s. So it was a couple years old. 99 Mustang, the girl wanted a girl wanted a sunroof. Okay. Top slider, no problem. We do a million of them. So she brings it in. My shop manager did it himself. And he's one of these guys. He he could do work and be on the phone and do this and do a million things at once. He did the sunroof. And when he put the template on top, he measured front to back, but he didn't measure side to side. He got busy or whatever. I don't know. He took a phone call or whatever. Anyway. So when you looked at this Mustang, the sunroof was way, it was like, dude, it was bad. It was like a foot. It looked like it was over the passenger side, nothing over the driver's side. It was bad. Oh, no. And he did the whole thing. And I remember him being halfway through and cut it. And I was like, finish it at this point. And what do you do? You cut a hole in the top of the car. You can't do anything. So I remember, but then I, and then I looked at the license plate and it said my baby. And I thought, okay, this isn't going to be good, but. Uh, I said, let me know. Let me know how it goes. I remember him telling me, he came into my office. He goes, okay, kind of, we have a problem. So what's the problem? He goes, she came up to it and at first she was okay, but then she saw it and she fell to her knees crying. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. Oh man. Yeah. So I said, this is not good. So anyway, we, that one, sorry. That one was not, that was, and then her, the only way to do that is to replace the whole roof skin of the car. You're talking a huge body shop job. And what was worse is her dad ran a body shop at a Cadillac store in Columbus. So he and she insisted only he do it. So not only could I not get a couple estimates and peek deeper, I had to do it. And I remember that one was $12,000 too. And then we, and then my job manager tried to charge her for the sunder. If I was like, no, you can't just, let's just make it 12,500. Let's not just do it 12. That one was bad. The worst employee thing I ever had 
was I get a call at 6.30, at 6 o'clock, because my office closed at 6. I was at home by then. And it was my shop, my uh, office guy. And he goes, hey, we have a little bit of an issue. I was like, what's that? He goes, one of the techs wrecked that orange Mustang. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? Come to find out that we had, a, there was a, an orange Mustang that I personally was working with the car guy because he was a friend of the dealer principal. So that I took it and all he needed was some stripes that he had bought, put on the side of the car. It was like a $200 job. It was so easy. But he had just gotten a supercharger in it at the local Ford dealership. He had never even driven it yet. It got delivered from the Ford dealership, got delivered to the Ford dealership, put a supercharger in it. They brought it over to us. We put graphics on it and he was picking it. He was supposed to pick it up that night. One of my techs, no longer with me, decided he wanted to see what the supercharger would do. So he oh. took the keys and... And we're on a side road. We're not on a main road. But he took off burn marks, because I have it on video. Burn marks. And he got into some gravel, lost control, and the whole side of the car went into the back of a Pathfinder. No, no. On my neighbor's lot. Airbags go off. Now, what's worse is the police were at the Speedway gas station next door. They heard the wreck. And they came over and because they heard it, they saw it happen. They cited him for failure to control and they made a report. Okay, whatever. They call me and they go, hey, this wreck. And I know this guy was not pleasant to work with. He was a jerk out to me and beat me up about $200 stripes. And he, I was like, oh, I was like, listen, it's 630 at night. There's nothing I can do tonight. I can't call him. I can't do anything. I said, put it, park it in bay one. And I will, I'll just deal with it in the morning. I just, it was a long day. So I'm like, okay, I'm so at 1030 at night, I'm like, I'm laying in bed. I'm like, just, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? So 1030 at night, I get a phone call. I'm like, well, that's weird. I answer the phone and it's the customer. Somehow he got my cell phone number and he's like, what the, fuck? I'm like, my car got, and I'm like, what? I said, who called you? He said, oh, the police officer said, hey, sir, I didn't get the, the VIN number off your wrecked vehicle. Can you just give me your VIN number? And he goes, oh. what do you mean my vehicle's wrecked? And that's how he found out through the police. It's the worst. Instead the worst. of me being able to call him, find it out through a cop who was next door that happened to see the wreck. Oh, no. So. The next day, I get, you know, so he goes, I want to see my car right now. So I drove to the shop at midnight, met him there, and his wife did the same thing. She fell to her knees, started crying. This is my baby. This We are going to take this on the track. Now it's wrecked. And I fell for him. I fell. A $40,000 car, $10,000 supercharger, whatever. I just felt bad for him. But that was horrible. So then I'm like, so I don't want the story to go on too long. But so I'm like, okay, the insurance, I said, listen, the insurance company is going to fix this everything. So I talked to my, the tech who I was suspending and said, okay, your insurance company, this was after hours, you were clocked out. Your insurance company's going to fix this. This is, has nothing to do with me. You took this car and his insurance company was going to do it until the, his insurance company called the customer because the oh. customer wanted to file grand theft auto. Oh. And because it was a, Stolen vehicle, 
then his insurance company won't cover it. <laughs> so they're file, they're trying to file now. Fortunately, the local police, I know them real well. I do a lot of their cars and their police squads and everything. And the head detective or chief was like, no, listen, you're not filing grant theft auto. The kid made a mistake. We're not going to do that. Sorry. But he told that to the insurance company, closed it and said, no, you're not going to report. So my garage keeper's liability took over and said, okay, we're going to fix this. It was like, I don't know, it was fourteen dollars to $20,000 in damage. So they're not going to total the car. And, but, and I could also see from the cut. So I told him, I said, listen, we're going to fix it. He's no, I don't want it fixed. I want a new, new car. Now, what do you do? What do you do? I get it from his viewpoint, Jesse. What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm sorry. Life is the way it is, but they're not going to total it. And they're not going to buy you a new car. They're going to repair it. And he goes, no, I'm not driving around with a wrecked car. Did you devalued it? I've never even driven it. So I see it from his vantage point. Yeah. The only reason I was being a jerk to him because he was being such a jerk to me, threatening me, suing this, that. And finally, I remember I was walking along and I get on his phone call. I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to be as nice. Like I offered him some upgrades. I'll do some stuff for you. I'll do whatever I can. And he goes, the only thing I'll accept is after they fix the car, you also write me like another $20,000 check or something stupid. I was like, come on, dude. No. And then he goes, I'm going to sue you. I said, you know what? Go ahead. You're suing my insurance company. I don't know which one it was at the time, Nationwide or whatever. I go, they have a team of lawyers, I'm pretty sure, that will go to war for you. And all the legal, the state of Ohio is the way it is. It's, you're, it's not going to happen the way you want. Sue whatever. I said, however, I will come to your work tomorrow. And I will, I, let me think on some stuff because I do feel bad for the situation, everything like that. So I went to his work the next day and I said, I said, all right, here's what I'm willing to do. I will write you a check right now for exactly what you paid for that vehicle, including the supercharger. And you sell me the car as is. However, you can't bash me on social media. You can't bash me on reviews. You can't go tell all your friends and go put my name in the mud because I think I'm doing a stand up thing here. I'm going to pay you exactly what, and you can go buy your another car, put another supercharger in it. Please don't come to me for stripes, but, but go do it. And you know wow. what he said? Now, now, let me ask you, Jesse, how do you feel about that? Is that pretty that, fair? That's more than fair. Like more that's fair. above and beyond. Yeah. It, it's either that or the insurance company's going to fix it and you got your car. Don't call me again. Either way, the problem is solved right? from, for yeah. a, from a reasonable point of view. And you know what he said to me? I'm sitting in his office and he goes, okay, but what's your punishment going to be? <laughs> this whole thing is a punishment. <laughs> yeah, really talking to you, buddy. So you yeah. know what I did? I closed up my checkbook and I said, you know what? That was my offer. Thank you. Great opportunity. Have a nice life. And I literally walked out of his office and I started walking down his stairs and he came running. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know what? I'm sorry. Come, please come back. Please come back to my office. Talk to him. I said, I looked at him. I go, is it going to be a reasonable discussion? Yeah. He said, yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So we went back then. He goes, you know what? You're right. You're doing a stand up thing. I'm just flustered. My wife, blah, 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 blah. He's vomiting all over. He goes, that's fair. And he goes, what if the new car's more? I said, that's not my problem. He's yeah. still going. He's still yeah. working. Yeah. He's just still trying, still trying. <laughs> so I literally that day, because I wrote him a check for that. I gave it to him. I remember it was like 40 some thousand dollars. And I bought this orange Mustang 
that I now had to get fixed up. I ended up fixing it up, dressing it up a little bit, selling it. I think I sold it. I think the whole thing ended up costing, I think it was like a nine, $10,000 loss, but it was just the emotional and just the back and forth. And you're trying to be positive and run a business when you got this big, huge thing hanging over your company. So those are the things that make you lose sleep, that make you go gray, that make you just don't want to be in business. That's when you just want to be a part of the union, working on the line, trying to get a 40% increase and work four days a week. <laughs> yeah, I totally get it. That's awesome. So to this day, we still call that legend the Orange Crush because it was this bright, bright orange Mustang we call Orange Crush. Orange Crush story. That's like in the employee handbook now on what, here's what not yes. to do and why. Yes. I want to move into business strategies and partnerships and discussion about other stuff related to the business. How do you approach marketing, first of all, for your business? And what strategies have been successful to you? So for us, you have, for us, we've been uh, dealer heavy so long. And over the last few years, especially during COVID, we realized, okay, we got to be more diversified. Um, we were getting a lot of referrals from dealers. So our retail business was okay. It started growing. I said, well, we really need to be diversified because there's, unfortunately, there's a lot of dealers that just leave money on the table. So how do we get some of that business? Somebody wants to dress, if they want to dress up their new truck, they're going to either do it at the dealership, but if they don't, then they're going to do it somewhere else. So we had, we want first, we want to be at the dealership to try to get the first one. But if we miss the first one, we need the other pole in the water too, to be able to grab that one. So I look at it as almost two poles in the water, one for dealer, one for retail. For dealer, marketing is a little easier, I feel, because it's more face-to-face -face relationship building taking care of people, doing the right thing, building up that over time. Educating, them, like you know, talked about earlier, right? Educating, educating coming sure. in. Yeah. yeah, you do a sales meeting every so often at the dealership. You're training them, you're telling them new things, but you're available. Call me anytime, text me anytime. I'll get you the answer. That includes evenings and weekends. You know, if you're in this business, you're like, hey, if you get a text Saturday at one o'clock during the football game that you're watching and it says, hey, how much is it for this? You got to be able to reply because that's when they're in front of the customer and that's when they're, you're the most important person to them. It's not Thursday at two o'clock when they got nothing thinking that you're trying to talk to them about products because it's not important to them at that point. It's only important when it's relevant and it's relevant right now at one o'clock on Saturday. So I tell my sales team, be ready 24 hours a day. That's more important than almost being out there driving around, visiting dealerships, be available when they need you. Um, and then the, it's, and then, you know, email marketing, obviously keeping them up, you know, getting everybody on that social media, but social media, we use more for retail than we do dealer. Um, but yeah, we, we, but our email marketing, we've got it broken up to, for wholesale and retail. So our, we have separate stuff that goes to dealers that are more relevant. Hey, it's remote starts. Here's three different options. Here's three different ways you can, it's more, here's the more OE style stuff that people are looking for a power lift gates might be more important for somebody in a dealership than it is just some retail customer adding heated seats, that kind of stuff. So uh, retail on marketing is a little bit different because there's a gamut, right? And every me, and this is when I interview you that we'll talk about this stuff. What we do currently, it's working. I think the big thing for us, the reason why we're doing well retail is because we spend the time with the customers. We hear what they want. We listen, we go over their truck, we make suggestions versus just boom, sending out quotes and giving prices quick on the phone. We found that when we just slow down and spend time with the customer, 
the average price of the, of the, of each sale goes up. So between we're still doing social media, email marketing, stuff like that. I, I really stay away from the mainstream TV, radio. To me, all that stuff is not as niche and I've learned my lessons or maybe I got burnt in the past. And so now I'm bitter. But. A good point too, about the taking time with the customer and the education of the customer, also important, right? You can't do a proper job of prescribing if you haven't done a good diagnosis, right? Like you don't really know what the customer wants and you don't really know what their situation was with their vehicle. You can't actually give them what they truly are looking for anyway. Yeah. And you end up just being an order taker, which it's okay. But again, you could be leaving money on the table, just like the dealership leaves money on the table. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. Just get learning the story because they, they come to you for a tonneau cover on a truck, but then you're like, how are you going to get into it? Oh, I got to find some step art. We'd sell those. This is my baby. Are you going to protect the front end? Are you going to do paint protection film? Are you right. going to do windows? Oh, you guys do that too. That's the number one thing. When we hear that, oh, you guys do that here too. Yeah. So if we don't hear that, we haven't talked enough. <laughs> yeah. To them. Great tip. Do you have any like strategic partnerships? that have significantly benefited your business or referral partners, or do you work with other shops or how did you build partnerships in your community? And it, you might include the dealerships, obviously dealerships are a strategic partnership, but they are. there's also things for, for the retail side, for the commercial fleet side mm -hmm. or, or any, anybody else that's, that you're working with. Yeah. There's some fleet stuff. There's some fleet shows, events you can go to. I think car clubs are also good. We never really did a lot of that stuff until we got into some of the higher end vehicles that something you could do to them. So like ceramic coating, paint protection film, window film, those types of things that you can do on higher end vehicles that normally don't have, you don't need to put leather or backup camera in a Corvette, but now a Corvette club, a Porsche club, something like that, that we're, we can go to, we put a tent up or a Jeep club, a Jeep uh, event where maybe bring some, bring a Jeep we've done, put up a tent, put some marketing material out, get a little rubber ducky to give them what has our name on it, whatever. Just stuff like that has also really helped influence our retail. That's great. Cool. Uh, a couple more. Let's talk about handling challenges, interactions with people. How do you handle customer relations? You, you've already talked about it a little bit, but especially with the disagreements and complaints, that's something I'm curious about. What happens when you get a phone call that's not going your way? What do you guys do? Do you have a policy around it or how do you approach it? I... So the one thing I do is I don't get involved too quick. I do feel that, and I tell my guys, like I said, it's a game. If you as the owner get involved too quick, then you don't have anybody you can elevate it to. <laughs> so I, I tell them, let, I let my uh, server, customer service person handle it first, try to work through it, be nice, be respectful. But once it needs to get elevated to the manager or to the shop manager or a general manager, whatever, they can take a shot at it. By the time it gets to me, it's obviously pretty bad. The first thing I do is, and I try to teach my people to do the same thing as a long line, is first of all, I try to listen. I just listen to them and try to empathize. Because I, even though I'm going to be, I'm always going to back my guys, I also have to realize that maybe we did make a mistake. Along the way, we probably made, we may not made the big mistake, but we made a mistake that caused part of this problem, whether it's lack of communication or if something wasn't said or told or whatever, something is, has elevated it to this point. So the first thing I do is listen, just listen to them. And, and when they go, I don't have to get into the whole story, sir, I really need you to, because I just want to hear from your vantage point. How do you feel about this? How's it happened? And if nothing else, it's just for me to help my people get better for the next time. But that allows them, I, when they tell me and just vent, 
sometimes you can find out, are they really venting just a vent or are they venting just to get something fixed or you know, where are they at? What's you almost find out what the issue is, where their feelings just hurt. Yeah. And so then you try and then you, without you try to figure out, okay, where were some mistakes made? And then I don't find, I'm okay with admitting, you know what, sir, you're absolutely right. We should have called you and told you this. We should have done that. And I'm sorry. However, did that constitute us buying you a whole new vehicle? No type of thing. You know, that in my mind, I'm thinking that. But I also go, but reasonably, I can see, I also see why my, maybe my person didn't do this. They probably didn't do this because of this expectation level or this or that. I said, but that doesn't excuse it. And I understand where you're coming from and I empathize with you. How can we resolve this? And I, at some point, when I feel ready for the conversation, I'll just ask them. So, Jesse, let me ask you, what, knowing your side, my side, what's fair to you? How, what can I do to make you feel better about this whole situation? Because I don't want you to go walking away with a bad taste in your mouth about us. You do like your car. You like what we did. What can I do to make it better for you? I like that. And they usually say, I don't know. I said, obviously, there's something that you're thinking of. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. Do they just want me to say, I'm sorry? Do they just, do they want me to buy them a new whole car or do they want me to knock 50 bucks off or, and, or give them free window 10 on the next one? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. What it, it could be. Yeah. So usually something will come out and then if they really are stuck, I just don't know. Then I give them a couple options. I said, let me give you a couple options. I could do this, keep it as it is. I'll give you a little bit of money off. Just not that admitting we're doing anything wrong, but it's more just, I feel bad for your situation. I just want to try to do, go above and beyond this. So I do what's right. Without taking blame, you can still do that. Or I offer them too. Is there anything else I can do for your car that I can help you out with? Because you've already paid for this one and it's going to take a lot of paperwork to go back and do a refund to do this, do that. Is it easier for me just to give you, a, is there anything else you're looking for on your vehicle that I might be able to help you with? And yeah, and I'm telling you, I think it's probably a third and a third of the people just, you know, give me some money off. A third of the people say, yeah, give me something else for a discount. And a third of the people just, are just pissy and it, you can do whatever, offer them nothing. And you say, thank you a million times and this, that and eventually it just goes away with you send up, let me just send you a gas card. And, and they end up, I'll just keep an eye on it and see how it looks. And I'll get back to you if it becomes even a worse problem. No, thank you, Jesse. I'm going to send you a gift card for thanking you. And yeah, you've got my personal number and blah, 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 blah. So just let me know if I can ever help you. And those people never call back. They just goes away. They just wanted to. They just wanted to be right and vent. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, good point. What are uh, some of the common misperceptions people have about auto restyling a as an industry, as a business? I'm sure there's misconceptions. You've already mentioned a few about the, the dealerships have, and I'm sure there's a bunch on the re on average consumer side too. I think uh, the one thing I've, we've always had to fight in our business is the stigma of aftermarket, that word. Yeah. We tried to even stop using it. We say, what, what do you do? Oh, I upgrade vehicles. It's a better, it, yeah, it's a lot better. Because if you say aftermarket, poor thing, oh, an inferior product. But what's stupid is, if you really reason with somebody, do you think Toyota manufactures the rubber floor mats on the front of your vehicle? You think there's a guy in Japan going, oh, look at the new rubber floor mat I got. And he stamps it, he makes it and designs it and does this. And you think they make the rear view mirror that goes in here? Do you think they make the camera? Do you think they make the seats? Do you think they make it? No. The OEs are assemblers. They make the transmission, they make the engine, and they make the body, and then they bring in all these other thousands of parts 
and they deliver a Toyota. Now, the counter argument to that is, yes, but Toyota has gotten with the, the floor mat manufacturer and made sure it's standed up to all kinds of standards and testings. Oh yeah, I'm sure they drove it to Siberia and stomped on it for 30 months in negative degree just to find out if it's going to, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that's what they did. But just reasonable when you really start talking about, for instance, the leather we do, the sunners we do, the backup cameras we do, all the, the step bars, some of the tonneau covers. Backflip is a very popular tonneau cover. People go, okay, I don't want the aftermarket version. I'm going to buy the Ford version. Oh, okay. Because Backflip sells it to Ford, stamps their name on it, assigns it a part, and adds 40%. Smart. Okay, genius. You're a genius. <laughs> oh, but oh, but I have Ford stamp of approval. That's funny. They ship it to me, and I install the Ford one. But why? Because the guy doing the old changes at the Ford dealership doesn't even know how to put it on. So I'm doing the Ford accessory. You're buying it through the Ford parts department. It literally came from the next to the shelf where mine comes from, and it comes through the channel. But you paid forty percent more. Congratulations. You're right. Now I can take it to any Ford dealership and get it warranted. Yeah, see how that goes for you. <laughs> Open ticket six months later. Yeah, we figured out there is no part to fix this. Sorry, sir. <laughs> but you're okay with that because it says Ford. So it just, so it's that misconception of our industry of the kind of products we're using or that, that we hack cars or we do this, we do that. We really don't. We're, we are using the same level of care. In fact, manufacturers send us, we fix more roofs that are broken than we do aftermarket. Just because we have the knowledge. We fix Factory seats. We fix factory electrical problems, factory radios. So everything's going to have an issue. It's just fighting that stigma of this is aftermarket. So other things we do is sometimes we'll give a longer warranty or a better warranty just to give them peace of mind. That's awesome. I have one last question. Yeah. Uh, for now. And it's how do you manage work life balance? This is a demanding industry. It's a demanding business. How do you deal with all that? It's a good question because I probably have one of the busiest personal lives. My wife, two teenage kids, very active in my religion, very, do a lot of volunteer work. I do uh, have a lot of, I love playing tennis. I love playing sports, pickleball, love doing all that kind of stuff. I like watching football. I like doing, going, hanging out with friends, social events and stuff like that. And then you got this business and we got the software business. We've got, I've got, I do some consulting work. I become whatever I need to become that day. I just look at it as, okay, when you walk into your closet, I don't know, you got 50 pullovers there. Which one do you need right now for this day? So right now it's talking with you and talking about SEMA and pro and building the industry and helping our business and this and that. But after we're done here, it might be, okay, put on my dad jacket and go hang with my son, take him wherever he needs to be. And then later on, it'll be, okay, now have dinner with my wife jacket. So it's just changing outfits. It's just all, all day is just changing outfits, whatever you need to be at that time. Sometimes it's a installer. Sometimes it's a manager. Sometimes it's an owner. Sometimes it's a salesperson, whatever you got to do. I don't like the hats analogy. Cause I feel like some people wear too many hats. You can only wear one hat at a time to cover your head. So it's just, how quick are you? able to take one off and put another one on and move on and adapt. And there you have it. Another high octane episode of the Ride and Style podcast revved up and ready to go. Your hosts, Jesse Stoddard and Josh Polson shifted your automotive game into overdrive. 
If you're hungry for more insights, trends, and game-changing interviews from the automotive restyling universe, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a glowing review. We'd also love for you to share this podcast with your gearheads, installers, and auto lovers network. Because remember, knowledge is power, but shared knowledge turbocharges the whole industry. For more expert resources to supercharge your business, cruise on over to autostylemarketing.com, your one-stop shop for everything automotive marketing. Until next time, keep those wheels spinning and your passion ignited. Thank you for riding in style with us. See you on the next lap.